talk about a company dream, dream, dream. Why don't we dream big, dream big, dream big, But the good thing about having a big dream is that you get people to really think in a different way. Welcome back to Talking on Tap, AB InBev's new podcast that brings you inside our company to learn about some of our ideas and initiatives. I'm your host, Elaine McCrimmon, Global Head of Reputation and External Engagement. And this week, we're bringing you something really special, an interview with our CEO, Carlos Brito, before he leaves. After 32 years at the company and leading AB InBev as CEO for 15 years, Brito is moving on to the next chapter, but not before sitting down with us to talk a little bit about his career, some of the highlights and what he's learned along the way. I know you're going to love it. Welcome to Talking on Tap. Welcome to AB InBev's Talking on Tap. I have a very special episode today. It is an honor and a privilege to be joined with our CEO, Carlos Brito. And joining me for this special interview is John Blood, our Chief Legal and Corporate Affairs Officer. John Brito, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Elaine, it's great to be here again. Brito, I have so many questions for you and I know John does too. So John, over to you. Thanks so much, Elaine. Brito, it's great to be able to spend some time and chat with you. Can you take us back to early in your career? Who has been the biggest influencers, mentors? Tell us a little bit about how it all started. All right, John. Great to be here. It all started by, you know, when I went to business school in the U.S. I went to Stanford Business School. Prior to that, I had worked in two multinationals, Daimler-Benz, the car company in Germany, and Shell Oil in Brazil. But uh, at some point, I wanted to have an experience as an engineer to broaden my horizons. And I thought the MBA was the right thing to do. And MBA, of course, had to be in an American university, at least in my mind. So I applied to four, as accepted to three. And for two of the first ones I applied, I had a scholarship from the Rotary Association. But Stanford Business School was the last one I applied, and it came only in June. And then I tried to change the scholarship to go to Stanford, but it was too late in the process and I say, man, I had to find somebody to sponsor me because they would only pick one Brazilian per year for the Stanford Business School class of MBA. So I had a friend of mine, his uncle had a business in finance, who knew somebody, who knew somebody. Got me an interview with Jorge Paulo Lemon, who used to own a very famous boutique investment bank in Brazil. And he was famous for investing in studies for the people that worked at the bank by giving loans for these people to go for the MBAs, LLMs, and all that. But I was not uh, an employee of the bank. I worked for Shellwell. But I got this interview, went there, and, and said he, he was kind enough to give me one hour of his time. And I kind of tried to do the best I could. And at the end, he said, okay, I'll check how well you're doing at Shell. Call you next week. So sure enough, he called me next week and said, you know what? I got some good information, like our interview. I'm going to pay for your first year not the bank, but me, myself. And it's a scholarship you don't need to pay back. But I'd like you to keep me updated on the progress. If you see something interesting you sent to me and all that. And I said, no, I'll do it. And for two years, that's what I did. I would write, there was no emails in those days. So I would write a letter and send my mail, regular mail, every month. And he never wrote back, but he always called back. He'd always call every time he got the letter. We'll talk for a minute or two or three. 
And that kept the relationship going. And then for my summer job, I went to Germany again with McKinsey, consulting, learning a new industry. And then, you know, when it was time to choose my full-time job, uh, full-time position, I interviewed like my colleagues with many companies. I had seven, eight job offers in front of me. I only interviewed the companies in the U.S. and Germany. Brazil was going through a rough patch. And in Brazil, I interviewed with his bank because that was part of our deal, that before I would choose anything that I would, you know, talk to them. No obligation, but just talk to them. Keep everybody in the loop. So I went there for Christmas. I went to Brazil to visit my family. And while I was there, I interviewed with them. And it was March, April. I had to make a decision. So I called him and I said, hey, Roger, you know, I, what are we going to do? And he said, oh, we like you. Why don't you come work with us? And he said, okay, but to do what? He said, oh, you come, you look around, see what you like, and you do it. And I'm looking at all these letters with the company letterhead, all thick papers, all formalizing what I was going to do, salary and everything, right in front of me. And he wouldn't talk about compensation or salary. And the conversation was about to die. I would talk about something else, see if he would talk about it. He wouldn't. And then at some point, I took a deep breath. You know, I, I, I breathe in and said, okay, I need to ask this question. So I said, George, what about um, compensation? I know it's not important, but... And then he said, oh, compensation. Yeah, I know, yeah. We, we pay a low salary. Everything is variable. Fixed salary is low. Just pay your gas bills and, and rent and all that. I said, okay, but uh, can you be a bit more specific maybe and tell me what the value is? <laughs> and he asked the guy right next to him, open layout. And he said, um, yeah, what's the salary for uh, an MBA joining us? And he said, oh, the fix is uh, 20000 And these offers I had in front of me was between 80000 and 100000 And he said, 20000 Okay, great. And he said, and he said, okay, for your first year, because you have to move from the U.S. back to Brazil, I'll give you 5000 on top. So first year is 25000 but then it goes back to 20000 <laughs> He said, okay, great. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> and the very reason, John, I took it is because when I went... Before going to business school, I had to get him to sign some papers to send the dollars abroad to pay for the school. And in those days in Brazil, you couldn't send money abroad unless for education or health reasons and stuff. So I went there with the central bank type formularies and the you know paperwork is signed. And when I was about to leave, he said, hey, Brito, have you ever been in an investment bank? I said, no, I'm an engineer. And he said, okay, when are you going to the U.S.? I said, oh, in three weeks time. He said, would you like to come here for two weeks to get to know our people and culture? And I said, yeah, sure. And that's what made the whole difference. Because when I went there, they were a small organization, brilliant people, young people, everybody making decisions, very active, agile, and, you know, energy everywhere. And I compared that to the other companies that were great companies, but very different styles. I said, man, one day I'd like to be part of this group. Then I went for my MBA and all that. But when I had to make a decision on the full-time job offer, despite the salary difference and despite having to go back to Brazil, that was really in a tough spot, people and culture made the whole difference. And that's how I started in the beer business because once I went to the bank, by the way, I met my wife at the bank and we've been married for more than 30 years and for kids and all that. So that worked well as well. <laughs> but uh, three months into the bank, four months into the bank, they bought the brewery and Marcel Tell is the, one of the top partners there went to be the CEO of the brewery company and he invited me to go with him and I went because I like being an engineer. I like machines and products and facilities and industrial sites. So I went with him and I've been here now for 32 years. 
No, it's been great. It's been a great ride. And uh, we could not not have imagined that starting from one country would go to another and another and another and become this global company we are today. So it was an amazing ride. I didn't do anything by myself, but it was a team that did it together. Rita, yeah. there's so many people so glad you made that decision, me included. That's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. Absolutely the right choice. Uh, you talked about uh, Marcel. Can you then give us a little bit more information about the best piece of advice you've been given along the way in your career? Marcel is a doer. He's a people guy. And he's a very simple person. He tries to simplify everything and very straightforward to the point. Doesn't talk much, but when he talks, everybody listens and um, knows the business well, likes to travel, be close to the front line. But I think the best piece of advice is listen to feedback. And that's something I learned. Yeah. You know, when I go to recruit people in colleges and stuff and they ask about my careers and what my career and what was important, I always say the power of feedback because it's so rare to find somebody and our culture supports that. In our company, everybody has the right to have a formal feedback, an honest one. It's not something that you won't have and one doesn't. Everybody has that. And if you find somebody in your life, I learned that, that is interested in your success and is willing to tell you what you need to hear, not what you like to hear, in a respectful and constructive way, this person is gold because it's very rare to find somebody like that. Most people tell you, you're great, everything is fine. And when they have something to tell you that they think you might not like it, they will take 10 years to tell you if they tell you because they're afraid it's going to ruin the relationship and it's going to be, it's going to ruin your weekend. So let me wait for next week. And then next week you travel and then another year, another 10 years. And you never give the person the opportunity to be a better person because you never tell the person what's going well, what's not going well in a constructive fashion, so the person can be a better person. You know, so that's, in our culture, that's very clear. You have to, you don't have the right to hide from people gaps that this person has, that in knowing this, this person could work with you to close those gaps and be a better person, a better professional, a better colleague. So you cannot play God and say, oh, I think I know what to do in an indirect way. No, no, let the person know and let the person decide what to do with that information as opposed to hide from the person. So again, if you find that person, that's gold. And Brito, thanks for sharing that. That really is a lesson for all of us to take, really take to heart this idea of feedback and finding people who give you that honest feedback and what you do with it as well. But Brito, let me take you back a little bit to those early days. You're back in Brazil. The business is building. When do you start to think about things outside of Brazil, about international expansion? When does your world, your business world, start to open up beyond the immediate borders of Brazil? When do you start going across countries, across continents? How does that work? How does that build up? What were the first instances when you started to expand? Well, it was all about people, John, because uh, when Marcel realized he was the CEO of the company, and I was a junior guy, but we started having attracting all these very talented people from out of college, recent graduates, and we had this deep bench of talent. But because we were only in one country, Brazil, the opportunities to grow were limited because there was only one head of marketing at the end. There was only one head of sales because the country was, was one. And Marcel said, man, we invest in all these people and uh, 
we don't have opportunities to offer to all of them and they're going to leave. So we're going to waste all that investment. Any studies saying, well, maybe if we go to another country, then there'll be parallel tracks. There'll be two heads of marketing, two heads of sale, two heads of the country. And that might turn this company in a more interesting company for people not only to join, but to come and stay for the long term. And then we started expanding Latin America, first Argentina, then Venezuela. And then we concluded that not only our culture would travel, was not a Brazilian com- culture, it was a company culture, and a lot of people would be passionate about it in other countries. We didn't know that, so we learned that. We also learned that our people like to do integrations. They like to get our culture there and to learn and exchange best practices and to do that thing. And there was a, a real value in getting people to go to a country, come back, and that whole back and forth turned the company into a much more appealing and interesting company. And now we could compete with other companies that were more international, more global, as we expanded more and more. And in doing all that, we also learned that we created value by getting our people and our culture over there and learning from our new colleagues. And that's what got, got this to be a toolkit that we applied then time and time again. On the other hand, John, when I went to the business school, at Stanford, even before the beer company, when people ask me what was important about business school for me, when I arrived at the business school, I felt as a Brazilian, and in those days, Brazil had 40% inflation per year, was born in the Amazon. I mean, coming out of a military dictatorship of 21 years. So, I mean, it was not one of those countries high on the list. And I went to business school and I arrived there. 90% of my colleagues were Americans. And if not Americans, the remaining 10% are mostly Europeans and the Japanese. And there were a couple, one from Argentina, myself from Brazil, two from Mexico kind of thing. So I felt like a second-class citizen because I was coming from this country that nobody knew much about and was an emerging market. And everybody else was from those developed markets with hard currency on their pockets and all that. And then after the first quarter, second quarter, I started feeling that I could compete with them that my English was not my first language. So it was always harder for me to participate in classroom discussions and all that. But then I got also a very good summer job, one that a lot of my American friends were trying to get as well, McKinsey in Germany. I went to Germany because I knew the language. My colleagues didn't. So I tried to differentiate myself right there. But all that convinced me that I could compete not only in Brazil, but I could compete also outside of Brazil. And for me, that was an aha moment. So when Marcel came and said that for us to expand, people like me, leaders of the company, would have to go places, I said yes, because I knew, because of the business school experience, that if I work hard and all that, that I could compete. And that was uh, hand-in-hand with the strategy of the company of expanding and and creating a more interesting company for talented people to come and stay. That's great, Brito. I really, I hear you talking so much about dream people culture and what the culture of a company is like. Tell me a little bit about, for AB InBev, how did that all come about, sort of identifying it, knowing what worked, and then expanding it, and really, in many ways, making it the lifeblood of the company in different countries as well. Can you talk a little bit about just DPC, what we call dream people culture? Sure. I mean, there's also, in the early days, we, we we had our culture, but it was not formalized. In one of the first integrations we did, business integrations we did, the merger with a Brazilian company, our company grew overnight and we started having all these new colleagues joining our company, coming from a different background, different culture. 
And I remember Marcel came to me and said, Brito, you have to formalize our culture. And I'll give this to you, Brito, for you to do it. And we had some principles that Marcel had brought from the bank, from the investment bank that he came from. But they were slightly different from the ones we adopted at the end. In many ways, similar, but also in some ways different. So after being some years in the beer company, we knew what we were about. And I sat down and I wrote, put everything in 10 principles. And of course, he approved it. But then I, as we continued to evolve that, and then we got together with the European company, I decided together with the, the head of communication back then, a Canadian guy called Nigel. I remember in our first leadership meeting with the combined company, I said, Nigel, we need a, a catchy name for this, you know, because it's called 10 Principles. That's fine. But I mean, when you think about it, let's organize this thing. This first principle is a dream. The next two is people. The other seven are culture. So let's call it Dream People Culture or DPC for short, you know, yeah. and let's see if that, that sticks. Let's see if that branding exercise, it's something that will get this thing to travel through the organization. And I remember we were in a hotel in Toronto and we were in the mezzanine the two of us trying to think of a name, a branding type exercise. And I'm, I'm not a marketing guy, but I remember I said, if we call 10 principles, it's too generic. I mean, let's try to give it a name. And then I, as I became the CEO of the company, I took it on me to really spread this thing whenever possible. So whenever I would talk in uh, outside events, external events, I would talk about it, internal events for sure. In any integration we did, that was the first thing. We would sign a deal in between signing and closing Myself and some colleagues would land in this new company, travel to whatever their main country was or main countries, and we would do town halls and always talk about dream people culture and then answer questions and then talk to leadership of the company, interview one by one, and always a small intro about our values and then answer questions and ask them what they thought about this, what we could do together, what were the opportunities that were untapped. But dream people culture was always the warm up type chat we had before we got down to business. Now, Brito, I've had the privilege of listening to many, many of these dream people culture uh, talks that you've given all around the world. And each and every time, what really struck me was your enthusiasm and your energy. Didn't matter whether we got off the plane late that night, early that morning. But when you talk about dream people and culture, there's something that just resonates within you. Can you talk a little bit just about how is it from country to country when you give that speech? How do you get up for that again? You've done it so many times. Is it because it's so critically important? Yeah, it is very important. Is what differentiates companies from other companies, countries from other countries. When you think about it, one of the first things we said, and it's obvious, but people forget about it, is that ourselves here, plus 164,000 colleagues around the world, we are A, B, and BAV. So if we're excited about something, AB and BEV is excited about something. If we're learning, AB and BEV is learning. There's no entity called AB and BEV. What we have is a group of people. We are the company. So what we do and what we decide to do as a group is what the company is doing. So the values that we share is very important because as the company grows, people are making decisions around the world in all different time zones as we speak here. They'll make different decisions than I would be making, than you would be making. But at least you know that the basis for those decisions are principles that are very basic, but very important. So I think it's very important because at the end, what differentiates companies from companies is the people you attract and the value set they share and believe and adhere to and live by. 
That's the difference. Countries the same thing. I mean, you look at countries that started pretty much the same, whatever, 1500s, 1600s, and they have pretty much the same length of time, and they progress in a very different way. And you go back and try to understand, it has a lot to do with the people that went to that country, A, versus country B, and what kind of culture they brought with them when they went to country B, as opposed to the people that went to country B, A and B. So, I mean, that's the same with companies, you know? In our company, we like this concept of ownership because we are the company. We like people to treat the company as we treat our own household, our own money. You know, if that's clear, then everything is easy at the company. Some people have two lives. They have their life to live with the money they earn. And when they come to the company, they think the company is rich, that they can do whatever they want. That doesn't make any difference if I stay in this hotel, five-star hotel as opposed to four-star. What's the difference? It does make a difference. Again, we are the company. Everything that 164,000 people do makes a huge difference. So we try to do in the company what we do at home, be efficient with how we allocate our money and uh, put money where our consumers are because that's what matters at the end. Brito, yeah. I know the ownership culture is so important to you, you just this concept of ownership. Can you talk a little bit when you're trying to attract talent how is it that you're trying to find the right person who has this mindset of ownership? I've heard you sometimes talk about people looking to come and you know have a, a year or so on their resume to say they did this. Can you talk a little bit about what it is you look for for long-term views for talent when you're trying to attract folks to the company? Yeah, for, first I try to see if, if the person is really somebody who could be a, an ambassador of our cultural principles. And that's not always easy because since some people are so well-trained in interviews, so, but you try as much as possible to ascertain if that person is somebody who's willing to really think about the group first, the group second, and then down the scale about myself. Or if it's one of those, which is all about me, you know, because here we believe that the power of groups is what makes the company special, is the belief that people together can do more than single people trying to do their stuff in silos. So if people don't believe in that, if people don't believe that talented people is worth one talent people, person is worth 10 very good people, and that to get talent, you have to do it yourself. You have to do recruit people yourself. Then when you enter the company, you have to go to the market yourself. You have to listen from consumers, from customers, because they will always tell you the truth and the way it is, as opposed to read reports. So, I mean, you try to ascertain if what's important to us is important to this person. And then you try to, to check also if this is a curious person, smart, somebody who has done stuff before, at college has done different things, taken risks, you know, somebody who, who has principles, somebody who doesn't believe in shortcuts, somebody who will always take the high road. So, and somebody who's energetic, optimistic, because at the end, it's great to work with people that have energies not only for themselves, but also to give to others, you know, because that's what makes the team dynamics special. So, and at the end, somebody who loves beer, because that's what we love, uh, love beer. I love that, Brito. And Absolutely. And Elaine, I have to have you ask a question because Brito's on a topic that I love. I'm a huge fan of the University of Michigan <laughs> football team, and they always talk about the team, the team, the team. 
So this has always resonated with me, but I'm going to go forever on this topic. So Elaine, please take it over. (laughs) Well, I'm also a huge, big fan of the dream people culture. And it's definitely very apparent when you go to any of our markets, we are the same culture through and through. You said it very well. We are AB InBav. Um, If you can share a little bit more about which day has been like the best day in the job. Have you got one of those points in time where you it's so memorable that it sticks out? Well, I think the best day is when you see people that you participated in recruiting, in coaching, that you, you know, followed, gave opportunity and all that. When you see these people blossoming and taking more and more responsibility, I think those are all great days. But one day that I can remember clearly was when we closed the business combination with Anheuser-Busch here in the U.S., it was in the midst of the financial crisis. We signed the, the deal in July of 2008. The deal only closed because of all the regulatory procedures we had to go through in November. And in September, the world changed with Lehman Brothers going bankrupt and the whole crisis, financial crisis went really deep. And we needed 10 banks on the closing wow. date to come up with a couple billion dollars each. And we had a plan for one bank if one bank would disappear, we had a, a bank that would pick it up. But if two or three disappeared, and banks, if you remember, were disappearing all the time, yeah, that would be impossible to close that deal. So the day we closed, November 18th, 2008, that was a very happy day. Because yeah. then we could think about the things we like, which is to grow the business, you know, to, to look forward as opposed to be wondering if bank A or B or C would still be there when the closing date would come. So that was a very happy day. And that changed the company, by the way, because then we came to the US, the magnitude of the business combination gave us a lot more scale, an amazing footprint, gave us a very interesting business in China yeah. that together with ours made what the business is today in China, very successful business in China, very profitable growth business, premium, super premium. So all that was amplified by not only that deal that gave us a great business in the U.S., but also a great business in China. And can you share a little bit more about the secret of our success at ABI and the secret of success for you as a leader? I think it's it's this idea that in believing that one company, one dream, one culture, because we grew not only organically, but also inorganically through different business acquisitions. So the M&A activity was very intense. And we had many transformational deals. And the belief that those transformational deals would only work if we would integrate the two companies and form a new company every time we did one of those deals was something that we worked really hard. We read extensively that M&A sometimes don't work because the two companies never really integrate. So I come and say, hey, I'm Brito from company A. And John comes and say, I'm John from company B even 10 years after the M&A was completed. And this is bad because the companies continue to operate as separate companies just under one umbrella. So the synergies and the cross-learnings never really take place. And because of that, we believe that it was very important from day one, right after signing, way before closing, that under the what's, what's possible to do when you are in this situation, that you travel and you meet the people and you identify the talent and you talk about the dream people culture, you answer questions, you try to take a little bit of that tension. Because think about that. 
when you are on the target company and you're in the limbo between signing and closing, because the world you knew is not going to be the world going forward. And the world going forward is a big unknown for your new colleagues. So for us to go there and try to answer questions and really take that pressure off their backs, on the other hand, also identify who the talents that were very important that we could not afford to lose from uh, that new talent pool that we were having now for the first time contacts with, that was also very important. So I think that was also very important how we integrate these companies to make one company at the end, A, B, and BEV. And always based on talking about the principles and being very straightforward with people. You know, when people would ask about tough questions, we would try to go to the principles and answer the questions. Because what we learned too is that people would rather hear an answer to a question, even if that's not exactly what they expect or would like to hear, than hear, oh, well, we're thinking about it. We'll come back to you. We're mm -hmm. still analyzing it. People would rather listen yes or no and then make their own assessment of whether they like the, the future or not. Yeah, that recipe seems to be very successful. So can you also share with us something that you've been most proud of in your 15 years as CEO? I think we build a principled company, a company based on principles. And in my 15 years, there were, there was, you know, good times and bad times, like in every company. And those principles were always there. We never thought about taking a shortcut or about doing, we always took the high road. Of course, we're not perfect. We're a whole bunch of human beings trying to do the right thing. Bruder, I'd love to just get your thoughts a little bit on brands. And I've had the privilege of being with you in supermarkets, convenience stores, bars, restaurants all over the world. And I can always see the passion in your eyes when we're there and you're picking up brands, whether they're some local champions we have or our global brands. Can you tell us a little bit about the stewardship of brands that have been around for several hundred years and just your philosophy overall on the importance of brands and what you do with them as you build them across over the world? When you think about brands, uh, brands are very important to consumers, to all of us. When you think about brands, brands not only saves you time because you, you know exactly what you're going to buy. Imagine if there were no brands and you had to read every fine print and every back label because you couldn't refer to anything more specific. So brands is a trust brand. And if you trust that brand, it goes straight there. It saves you time. Also, brands like ours has to do with your, with your lifestyle. You want to be associated with that brand. So you have to build something that allows consumers to express themselves through our brands included. And that's something that's very key. And brands at the end, is the expression of everything we are trying to do. Consumers don't know what we do here in our offices, but when they see a brand that means something to them on a shelf, well-displaced, rightly priced, rightly merchandised, and he or she buys it, that's when we did our job. That's the, the ultimate certification or approval of job well done. And that's why I like to go to supermarkets, grocery stores, convenience stores, because you see our execution in the real world. You also see what competition is doing, what other categories are doing. And sometimes our execution is great, sometimes not so good. So, I mean, it's good because again, nothing's perfect. But when you go to the market, you see the real world the way it is. And you see consumers in action and you talk to the owners of the stores and you tell them what's selling, what's not selling, or you ask them better saying, and you ask consumers when they're shopping, why did you buy this brand? You know, why did you buy that brand? 
and you learn from them because they tell you the truth. You know, sometimes when you look at a whole bunch of data, it's so consolidated that the truth kind of escapes you or it's buried there somewhere. When you talk to them, they tell the truth. So I think brands are key. But again, let's remember, behind successful brands are great people. And then we get back to people that understand consumers, that have the right insights, execute those by positioning brands right in consumers' minds and hearts. And then consumers will react to that by using their money, buying that brand as opposed to another brand. So brands are the expression of everything we do. And consumers with their wallet are judging and sending us a message every day. If they buy our products, they're sending us a thumbs up. If they buy somebody else's product, they're telling us, hey, think better about what you're doing with your brands. I love that connection between brands and people, Brito. One of the uh, areas that you spent a lot of time externally talking about over the last several years is sustainability. And you came up with this phrase, no, wa- no water, no beer, right? And it's something that I think really resonated with our colleagues all over the world. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of sustainability and your thoughts generally on what companies can do for their role or their part in things like climate action and other areas like that? Well, yeah, what I... When asked about sustainability from the very early days, I've always said sustainability is not the nice part of our business, something we do on the side. Sustainability is our business. When you think about it, no water, no beer, no farming products, no ingredients for our beers, right? And that's why the pillars for our sustainability program are four pillars. They're water, farming, energy, and packaging. Because this is exactly what we do every day. We get water together with farming products, together with cereals, we brew the beer, put in packaging, and we do all all that using energy for brewing and distribution, and that's our business. So we've always done it because that's our business. For example, if we as a beer company, we're telling here that the basis for our sustainability strategy, one of the pillars is going to be to help endangered species. This is very noble, but what's the impact we can have? This has nothing to do with our business. And this is something that's, that's going to become a path project. And at some point, it's going to be forgotten in the overall scheme of things. But if you talk about water, that's something we manage every day. If you talk about yeah. farmers, we get this contact with them every day and so on and so forth. So our pillars carry a lot of credibility. First, because we have a history of doing this forever. Second, because we have a lot of best practice and the best indexes in the industry on those things. And third... We have a footprint that covers the whole world so we can have impact. So when we work with communities to get water to a better place in places where water is scarce and we work with the communities and social and and governments and universities and all that to get sources of water to be healthier, rivers to be healthier so the community can enjoy that water forever. We are doing something that's good for us and good for our communities. Because at the end of the day, John, we're a global business, but we are a local company because 95% of what we do is all local. So if that community thrives, we tend to also do well. If the community is in trouble, we're also in trouble. So we have to be a responsible community participant and be at the table like we were with COVID last year. And still this year in many countries, we're involved in mask making, in hand sanitizer. We made them in our breweries, in using our trucks to help governments distribute staples 
and much needed medicine. We participated in building hospitals in countries in Latin America that didn't have enough beds and, and ventilators. We helped in some countries to build, along with other companies, vaccine factories to give access to vaccines to that country. So, I mean, we did a whole bunch of things that because we needed always, as we've always been, to be part of the solution when communities are facing crises or issues. We need to be at the table. Yeah, I can really see that linking back to the question earlier around brands and even, you know, a lot of our brands taking on board sustainability uh, campaigns and efforts. Um, But I want to stick with the brands and ask you, what is your favorite beer? We have so many. Can you share which one is your favorite? My favorite beer is the shirt I wear every day. It's on my shirt every day. It's called Budweiser, the king of beers. Absolutely. I, I also am modeling the Budweiser denim jacket. All right. <laughs> yeah, I see it. That's very cool. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything that you would like to share with our listeners, a final piece of advice um, that you'd like to give them? Well, I think first, I mean, what I learned, you know, through all these years is that if you are getting out of college and trying to choose a place to start your career or work life, what I learned is that choose people over things. That's always a, a good idea because at the end, you're going to be spending a lot of time with these people. And if you choose the right people, you'll have a lot to learn from them. You get a lot of energy, motivation from them. And together you're going to work as a team like no other team because you get along well, you share the same values and you're trying to land that dream that motivates all of you. But if you go for stuff, for nice names and things like that, and you end up with a group of people that you don't identify with, this is not going to last long and it's not going to get the best out of you. So choose people over things and always take the high road. You know, at the end of the day, reputation is something that precedes all of us, companies and people. Whenever you go to a place, people check your reputation. Companies, whenever you go to a, talk to a regulator, they will check our reputation. And reputation is the kind of thing that takes a lifetime to build and you can destroy it in one bad decision. So just pick the right people, the right value set and build your reputation every day because that's what precedes you. And at the end, people will remember you for the things you did. And the acid test for me is my family. I want 20 years from now that they look back, look at whatever I did and they look and say, you know what? That was not perfect, far from it. But you know what? He did stuff, always taking the higher road and trying to do it the right way. That for me would be success, definition of success for me. Absolutely. Thank you, Brito. Uh, Thank you for this discussion. It's been fabulous. I'd love to keep continuing the discussion, but I'd also like to thank you on behalf of all of our colleagues around the world for the past 15 years of CEO and 32 years with the company, you've left an amazing legacy. Thank you very much. Well, I'd like to thank you because of a lot of what I am today is because of the people that I had around me, you. Uh, you challenged me. I learned from you. You gave me the energy. You motivated me. You showed me when I had to change something. You gave me feedback. That's all key. And you became part of my life and more than that part of my family. So I'm going to miss all of you. Thank you. Thank you, Brito. Thank you. Thank you. 
You've been listening to Talking on Tap. I'm so proud to have worked alongside Carlos Brito. I know we all are, and we've all gained immensely from his leadership and guidance. I join all of us at AB Imbab as we wish him well in everything he does going forward. Thanks also to John Blood, our Chief Legal and Corporate Affairs Officer, for joining us for this interview. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else that you listen. I'm Elaine McCrimmon, and we are AB InBev. This is Margot Miller from the AB InBev legal team. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by AB InBev solely for informational purposes and is general in nature. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in this podcast, including by speakers who are not officers, employees, or agents of AB InBev, are not necessarily those of AB InBev and may not be current. AB InBev does not make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the content contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, is expressly disclaimed. Certain of the statements may have been forward-looking in nature and based on the current expectations and views of future events and developments of the speakers and are naturally subject to uncertainty and changes in circumstances. AB InBev does not undertake any obligation to provide any form of update, amendment, change, or correction to any of the information, statements, comments, views, or opinions set forth in this podcast.